0: So, as we've been uh, continuing our series on the life of David, called the once and future king, we've seen that David has emerged as God's choice to be his anointed one. And and we've seen how God used David to, to slay Goliath, Israel's great enemy, from slavery and save his people from slavery. And alongside this, both times, we've seen how David is ultimately pointing to a future king, a greater king, that is Jesus Christ. And this week, as our story continues, we've seen that that things have taken an interesting turn. As it becomes clearer that David is the man favored by God, those within Saul's family are faced with a dilemma. And their dilemma is actually a dilemma that we share in as well. See, Saul and his family must decide, will we accept God's anointed to rule over us? Or will we resist him? Will we love him or will we hate him? Perhaps one might need to take a little time, think this over, probe our hearts, what should we do? But eventually a decision must be made. In in this scenario, there can be no ultimate neutrality. Either we will resist or submit to God's anointed. well, well we are, are in a similar situation, For for since David points towards Jesus, the ultimate king, the ultimate anointed one, every person, me, you, everyone we know, must decide, will we submit to God's anointed Jesus? Will we love him or hate him? What will our reaction be towards King Jesus? And so today, as we think about our our passage and we, we probe this story, we'll see that the heart of two responses to God's anointed and we'll see despite these two responses that there is only one final outcome so that's three points two responses to God and one outcome for God's anointed so to to set a bit more context as as chapter 18 and and 19 go along we, we we've we've seen that David still has his old enemies the Philistines are still there they're they're a thorn in Israel's side and uh, David fights the Philistines and he has great success. Saul asks him to go on these daring and dangerous missions, and each time David doesn't just complete them, he goes above and beyond. One time earlier in chapter 18, Saul says to David, You need to go kill 100 Philistines and bring back evidence. So David goes out and he doesn't just kill 100, he kills 200 and brings back evidence. And Jonathan, Saul's son, next in line to the throne, has seen this. And he develops this, this close, intimate bond with David. He, he loves David. And just before our reading today, he actually makes a covenant with David. This, this deeply personal contract, this promise to David. That through thick and thin, Jonathan is going to be on David's side. And we're also told in the beginning of our passage in verse 28 that David finally gets to marry one of Saul's daughters, that reward from killing Goliath. So he marries Michael. But this turns out not to be just a merely political marriage as maybe Saul had hoped or intended, but we're told in our first verse that she actually loves David. Her heart is with David, not her father. And so, so leading up to this and woven through our story today, we see our first response to God's anointed. That God's anointed will be loved by some. That God's anointed will be loved. You see, way back in 1 Samuel 13, Saul, Saul's impatient. He can't wait for, for Samuel, God's prophet, to show up. And so he takes matters into his own hand. And he, he makes a sacrifice towards the Lord. And when Samuel gets there, Saul is disciplined. Saul is, is, is judged. And, and he is told, Samuel tells him, You have done a foolish thing, Saul and you will no longer be king. The Lord will end your kingdom. In that story, we're told Jonathan is there. He's watching. He's listening. He has heard what's happened between the prophet and his dad. And whether or not he fully understood all the ramifications at that time, it is likely that Jonathan would know, my father is going to be replaced. God has picked another to take my father's place. He knows that his father's throne would not last. And so because of this, because of his father's disobedience, he is put in a difficult situation. What will he do? How will he respond? And as time goes by, Jonathan Jonathan is there when David fights Goliath. Jonathan is looking on. Jonathan realizes that David keeps having these great successes in battles, that, that the people of Israel are taking a liking to David, that situations where normally people would die... David survives, and and Jonathan is is beginning to connect the dots. The the writing is on the wall, as it were. David is God's anointed. Jonathan understands this truth, and so he's left with this decision. How will I respond? Well, that that covenant I mentioned earlier, uh, Jonathan actually takes off his robe, his tunic, very personal, very intimate, and gives them to David. He gives David his sword, his bow, his belt. It is a picture of submission, of of commitment, that I am entrusting myself to you. I am renouncing my claim to the throne, David. I understand that you are God's chosen man. He believes in God's anointed, and he's motivated. Jonathan is operating from a heart of faith. It is trusting in God and God's ways. But but at this point, Jonathan doesn't know, well, what's going to happen to me? What will my future be? But Jonathan does know, no matter what happens, I'm with him. I am with David. My fate is sealed with him. Even if it pits me against my own father. See, Jonathan loves David and submits to him, but it comes at a cost. The cost of his throne, but also comes at the cost of opposing his father, as we've seen in our story, above other commitments and other loves. And friends, That is true for us. When we believe in the Lord Jesus as our Savior, as God, when we realize that that He is the anointed one, He is the Christ, we must submit to His will. Our love for Him must supersede all other loves, even family, even friends. So, So much so that when we come to faith in Christ, we do not belong to ourselves anymore. That we belong to Him in body and soul. We cannot come to Jesus and say, you know what, I kind of like you. You're a good moral teacher. I'll believe in you. Maybe you're God. If you advance my career, then I'll believe in you. You know, I I can believe in you, Jesus, provided you keep me healthy and safe. I'll believe in you, Jesus, as long as you give me my spouse, a spouse. As long as you give me the children I desire. As long as you change a couple of your teachings here that I don't like. No, when we come to faith, we bow our knee. We say to Jesus, you are Lord, not me. Your will be done, not mine. I don't know what the future holds in store, Lord, but I know my future is with you, Jesus. There are others I love, but there is no one I will love more than you. That is what it means to truly love and submit to God's anointed. And for Jonathan, this comes at that painful cost. For him to to do this pits him against his own father. His love and faith in God's anointed comes before everything, even his own family. Consider the words of Jesus in, in Matthew 10. Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be in the members of his own household. You see, for for Jonathan, just as for us, to love God's anointed comes with a cost. And so so for some of us, we we might love Jesus. We know that having faith in Christ, with it brings eternal life, a treasure beyond value. But it can be tough. Believing in Jesus doesn't just mean my life is going to get better here and now. Sometimes it can actually make our lives far more difficult here and now. And our story today tells us that one of those costs that could happen is that sometimes faith in Christ will pit us against our own families, against our own friends. And so we're left with this this tragic picture in this story here's Jonathan trying to defend David before his own father. But to no avail. Saul does not truly listen to Jonathan in our passage. Well, in different ways, we too may have to endure with the Lord's help. Those that we love, sometimes they will lash out at Jesus. We may plead with them of the goodness of Jesus. And they will not listen. They will harden. They will ignore. But but to love Jesus is to submit to him, to have faith in him, to entrust your entire life to him. But it comes at a cost of surrendering everything to him. Our allegiance to him rises above all others. But it is worth it, friends. You might be thinking, at such a cost, I love my family. I love my friends. How could I ever do something that puts that in jeopardy? Well, it's worth it, friends, because Jesus is the good king. Jesus has done no harm to us. Jesus has benefited us in more ways than we will ever truly understand. He is a king who has actually made a way for rebels to peacefully lay down their arms and become friends to the king they were rebelling against. To become not as prisoners of war, but as cherished children. But as Jonathan reminds us, though, Having this faith in Christ comes, it can come with a painful cost. And that is what it means to truly love God's anointed. And this brings us to our, our second response to God's anointed. That God's anointed will be opposed by some. That God's anointed will be opposed. And Saul has is, is, is been an interesting character through this story, and he, and he begins to realize it. And think about it as this... Goliath, giant, giant Goliath, this unlikely David emerges and slays him. And and the people start singing all these songs in in praise of him. And you send him out on dangerous missions and and he's succeeding. And the people love him. Your son loves him. Your daughter loves him. Everyone seems to love David. And David just seems to be uh, more successful than Saul could ever imagine. And so he begins to connect the dots. David just isn't anyone. David is the one that God is going to try to replace me with. You see, Saul is not dumb. In many ways, he is a normal person. He's calculating. He is in power. He has control. I have my family's future to think of. And who just voluntarily gives up their power? Such an idea would be absurd in the ancient world. If you were a king and you had a rival to your throne, to your claim of power, you didn't just reason with them. You killed them. You eliminated your threats. You want to be on top? Oh, no mercy. Doesn't matter if they're an old friend. Doesn't matter if they're a young child. Doesn't matter. Maybe they have saved your life before. If they are a threat, kill them. Better to err on the side of caution than lose your throne. And this isn't just something of the ancient world, as if only ancient people could be so barbaric and ruthless. Modern people, well-educated people, are just as capable of the same brutality and harshness. One example is just just think of the the Russian Revolution last century, when when Tsar Nicholas and his wife and his five children are captured by the, the communist revolutionaries. All of them are killed, children included. Why? In part, because they did not want any rival claims to power. No one legitimate who could challenge them. Well, here, Saul understands the situation. There can be one king, and he has decided, it is going to be me. And so do you see here, if we probe a bit deeper, what is Saul doing? What is he living from? If Jonathan's living from faith, what is Saul living from? He's living from idolatry. For for Saul, he has become king, and now that he's tasted it, well, it tastes pretty good. It's become his supreme treasure. His his life, his identity is now based on being king. As king, he has control. He can do whatever he wants. He has his purpose, and he can no longer live without it. He needs to be king. You know, it's not just a normal, healthy desire for something good. We all have those. Now it has become inordinate. It is it has become obsessive for him. He values it. Too much. Now, How can you tell? Because sometimes it can be tricky. Is this an idol? Is this not? Well, one sign, a clear sign from Saul's life, is that he opposes God over it. He says to the God of the universe, the God who, who has saved Saul countless times, the God, the God who made Saul king. Now that God has said, you will no longer be king. And Saul says, no. No, God. I will be king. That is how you can tell. And if we're honest, we have the same problem. Our hearts are prone towards idolatry. John Calvin, the reformer, once famously said that our hearts are an idol factory. Now, I would be very surprised if anyone really wanted to be king over Israel today or we don't want political power in the Middle East. That's not the throne that we prize. But whether it is sex... Sexual pleasure, money, whether it is education, power, authority, or something else. We all struggle with things that we think, you know what, if I just had that, if I just had that experience, I'd be truly happy. Or we have things in our lives that we think if they were ever taken away, our life wouldn't be worth living. Give up, no point in going on. That is how you can tell if it begins to... Move towards idolatry. And let's just focus on one example. Focus on, um, on give our attention to power for a moment. I mean, you might not think, I might not think, that, that we idolize power or authority. I mean, we're not a king. But imagine, what if someone was promoted over you at work for that position that you wanted? Even that person you don't like at work was promoted over you. Or even worse, what if your boss said to you, you know what, we're actually going to demote you and they are going to have your position. How would we respond then? Or or maybe on a, a more simpler everyday level, how do we respond when someone corrects us, offers a better way of doing things, when things do not go exactly according to our plan? And so Saul, in our story, he has made an idol of his kingship. And it, is a co- it has caused him to oppose God and God's anointed, David. And so, so Saul, in verse 1, he tells Jonathan in the attendants, David needs to die. We need to kill him. In, a, in the previous chapter, Saul tried to do it more subtly. Let's send David out on the front lines of battle. But now he is becoming more desperate, more emboldened. No, no matter what Jonathan says, no matter how good David is towards him, Saul will not be persuaded David must die and in verse 9 maybe you noticed verse 9 we're told but an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand now what does that mean an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul now it's tricky now one way to understand this is Saul has continually been hardening himself towards God and his commands. He's continually disobedient, will not listen. And so one of the things going on here is God is giving Saul over to the hardness of his heart. This is what you want, Saul. I'll give you over to your desires. But be aware, it's more than that. It's, very, it's more explicit. It says an evil spirit from the Lord has come upon Saul. Well, in understanding that, I think the best way would be that God has allowed, he permits an evil spirit from his presence to go into Saul's life and wreak havoc, to to hasten Saul's decline in in his sin and rebellion. See, God, God is sovereign over the universe. He is sovereign over everything, even Satan and the demons, over kings and regular people. But God is not the author of evil. And as God's spirit departs from Saul, God will no longer shield Saul in the way that he previously had. Saul is, you want to be on your own? I will leave you to be on your own. And so how does Saul respond? He throws this spear at David. Can you imagine that? You're in the living room maybe Sunday afternoon and a good friend, maybe a family member, throws a steak knife at you, whizzes past your head, lodges in the wall. What would your reaction be? But well, here, David's in the courtroom, or the court, the, the court of the king. And, and Saul throws the spear, whizzes past him, and, and beds in the wall. David hightails it out of there. Can't fight against my king. I gotta leave. But Saul won't stop there. He, he's consumed by this hatred of David. So he, he continues to plot to kill him. Even, again, when David has done nothing towards him, even after Saul throws a spear at him, David does no harm to Saul. Now now pause for a moment. Does that sound like a king we meet in the New Testament? Maybe if you remember King Herod, he too hears of another king, a rival to his throne in Israel, of this this king that's going to be born, this anointed one that's going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, what do you do with rivals? You kill them. And so King Herod orders that all boys under two years old are to be uh, killed in Bethlehem. Idolatry made Herod hostile to God's anointed Jesus. Now back to our story. So continuing in his hostility, Saul plots and he sends some, some of his men to David's own home to kill him in bed. And through this, this clever trick and, and the thinking of his wife, David escapes. He goes down through the window. They, they set up this, uh, you know, the, these pillows and these goat hair, this idol, to, to make it look like he's sleeping in bed. But do you see what's really going on here? What, what Saul is becoming like? In his idolatry and opposed to God, Saul is consumed by... He's, he's, he's fearful, he's afraid, he's jealous. He's full of hatred, murderous hatred. And if we too oppose Jesus Christ, we will eventually become like Saul here. We might not actually be murderers here and now, but our hearts will be dominated by fear by anger, by hatred, by jealousy, envy. We will be like like mad men and women out of our wits. We'll become ugly, increasingly undone by the insanity of our sin and the foolishness of our idolatry. Think of for a moment of addictions, of addicts. Maybe you know an addict in your life whom you love very much. An addict can be high-functioning. They, they can be happy, they can be charming. You, sometimes you never know when they have their drug of choice. But when they don't, a different side begins to emerge. When someone tries to take it away from them, even if they're trying to help them, well, then they lash out. They're no longer kind and charming. They become nasty. They yell, they scream, they'll say all sorts of horrible words, painful words. If they're restrained, they'll lash out against the restraints. They'll try to get out because they need it. Well, here, Saul gives us an image of what it is like, of what it is like when we're enslaved to our idolatry. We're we're, we're trapped by our sin. And now, and you might be thinking, well, okay, I'm not an addict. I'm not going to kill someone. We live in a nice, middle-class, friendly Canadian society for us, that could be easy for us then to think we're not like this. That we could never show a side like that. We might be able to hide this side, maybe from everyone our our whole lives. But in the end, friend, we must all realize all idols fail. They all come crashing down. And when our idols fail, and when they are taken away from us at the end, unless we have already submitted to Christ's kingship, we will be Like Saul, we will be like the addict, lashing out against God. That is the the tragic picture of Saul here, as as he does lash out against God and against David. And that will be the picture of everyone who opposes Jesus in the end. It is sad, it is ugly, but it is a clear warning. It's a loving warning to us that all those who oppose God do so to their own tragic demise. They cannot win. And so we're left with these two responses. On one hand, there'll be some who who love and submit to God's anointed. There are going to be others who oppose and hate God's anointed. But who's going to win? Is this an eternal struggle between good and evil? could, Could Saul and those who oppose God's anointed, could they win? Well, that leads us to our third and final point. That God's anointed will prevail. That God's anointed will prevail. See, in a way, and hopefully this makes sense, our text kind of resembles the story of David and Goliath. Except whereas before, so the, the enemy is very clear. It's on a battlefield, and the enemy is from without. It's a different people group. It's your old enemy, Goliath. Well, now David faces a different enemy. But this time it's an enemy from within, even God's own people. His king, his own army, the elite soldiers of his army are out to kill him. Doesn't it look hopeless again? How can one man defeat his king in an army? Maybe one could reason, okay, you know what? God helped David fight Goliath. That was a one-off, it's one-time thing. Maybe he got a bit lucky. But he can't be lucky forever. Against this formidable, formidable opposition, David's done for, isn't he? Well, miraculously and, and providentially in this story and through this story, David is not killed. Saul attempts to get David killed in battle. David succeeds. Saul throws a spear at David. And he misses. He sends an assassination squad to David's home. And they can't find him. After our passage, he sends more assassination squads after David. And they collapse to the ground. They cannot win. And Saul does not get the hint. But we, the onlookers, the listeners to the story, are supposed to get the message loud and clear. David is going to be safe because he is God's anointed. No one will harm him. No one will triumph over God. No one will take the life of God's anointed unless God permits it, allows it. So David is safe with the protection of the Lord. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, The Lord scoffs at them. Saul can conspire all he wants. He can plot to to kill David, to kill God's chosen king. But he does so in vain. There is no chance for victory. If you're an adult, uh, maybe if you've ever played like a sports game, maybe you've played some basketball or street hockey, you've gone swimming with a young child, maybe like a five or six year old. And they're cute and you're you're playing and and sometimes they'll they'll try so hard they want to win. Oh, it would be just great to beat, to beat my uncle, to beat my dad, to beat my mom, my friend. And you know, okay, if you really wanted, you could just demolish them. There's no way they're beating you in basketball or they're out swimming you. But maybe, maybe you, you, you play with them. Because it's cute. You like them. But, but it's, their efforts, if you were to try, are futile. Well, in a much greater way, God laughs at those who oppose him. Oppose his will, oppose his anointed, as if they could win. All the power of of the U.S., the EU, of China, if they all combined together, if the United Nations combined together to try to conspire against the Lord, they could not do so. It would be more ridiculous than the five-year-old trying to outswim Michael Phelps. But this time, such opposition, such struggling, trying to win, it is not cute. It is deadly serious. And so ultimately, as the story of David continues to unfold, there are two choices that Saul and those around him have have to make. Will we bow the knee to David? Or will we resist him? Oppose him? Try to kill him? And things now become clearer in our story. Jonathan has chosen. He has made his choice. He says, I will bend the knee. I will love David. I will submit to God's will. I will serve him. And Saul has made his choice. He will fight. I will oppose. I will resist him. I bow to no one. But Saul is no match for God. And the implications are clear for us. Whose side are we on? Will we, have we, willingly bend our knee to the Lord Jesus? Can we look to him and honestly say in our hearts, Ah? I know him. He is my king. He saved me. He rescued me. He delivered me when no one else could. And so by his grace, I gladly serve him here today. He is my king. Or like Saul, do we look to the Lord Jesus and say, no, I will be my own master. I am the captain of my soul. I bow to no one. I will resist and do so to our own downfall. Because in the end, everyone will bow to the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, we're all going to bow in the end. The question is, will we bow willingly or will we bow bitterly? In love or in hatred? Will we be a Jonathan or a Saul? And maybe you're here this morning and you're a genuine believer and you can honestly say, yes, I believe in Jesus. He is my king. Amen. And here I am not trying to rob you of any assurance of your faith, but for us to to probe our hearts, your heart and my heart. Are there areas in our life where we can easily lapse back into being like a Saul-like character? Yes, Jesus, you're Lord, you can reign, I will obey, except in this. In this area, I will still have control. You cannot have your will in this area of my life. Whether that is your money, your body, your phone, your weekend nights, whatever it may be, we all have our own struggles. But when we came to Jesus, we surrendered our entire lives to him. There is nothing we can keep from him. And when we are fight against our sin, it is a fight, remember? It's not something we indulge in. It's something that with his help, not alone, with his help we fight against. Day by day, little by little, we grow in obedience to living under his reign in every area of our life and heart. And maybe you're here today and you have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus. Maybe you're here today and and you're, you're fighting against him. You oppose him. Well, if that is you, friend, think of the words of Jonathan that we heard in our story. What harm has he done to you? What harm has Jesus ever done to you? Jesus has done more to benefit you than you can ever, that any of us can ever truly imagine or understand. You see, on the cross, he died in our place. The king actually died for rebels. That terms of peace could be made. That we could lay down our arms. That we could come to him in faith. That we could show a humble faith faithful spirit that trusts in him and have confidence, he will not push us away. He pushes away none who come to him. But those who are hostile to him, it's futile. You cannot win. In the end, all of us will know, we will find out that in the end, Jesus, the Lord, the anointed one, he will prevail. So come now. Come to him in faith. There is no greater decision you will ever make. Amen.